You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that wouldn't change places With anyone tonight We'll carve pumpkin faces And watch the witches flight RJ Every human heart will shudder. I recently LARPed. Every soul will shake with fear. RJ? It was pretty scary. Tonight, the creepiest. Tonight, the scariest. Oh, this is Professor Plum. Tonight, the most wonderful night. I did it with the lead pipe. Oh, night. Hey, RJ. I was going to be Mr. Body, but it just didn't happen that way. Did you know that anything can happen on Halloween? Your dog could turn into a cat. There may be a toad in your bass guitar, or your sister could turn into a bat. What do you think about that? Christmas time brings the snow. Summertime brings the sun. But on Halloween, your blood begins to run. Something spooky's going on. I'd say most of these things really aren't that spooky. No, in fact, as the song goes on, most of the things that can potentially happen on Halloween is something could change into another thing. That's not spooky. Yeah, well, take it up with Tim Curry in The Worst Witch. Not the one on Netflix, the one from the 80s. See, it's like Animorphs. Your sister turns into a bat. I've seen this show. Yeah, like your dentist turns into a sardine or something. Tim Curry could also play the tambourine. Anything could happen on Halloween. But what's happening right now on this Halloween is this episode. I'm Megan. I'm still RJ. Not a bat. Or a car. But you could turn into a... Uh, wait, what rhymes with... Wait, damn it. Your co-host could turn into a ghost. Ooh. Okay, um, happy Halloween, everyone. What are we covering on this, the spookiest day of the year? Talking about chicks, man. We're talking about chicks, man. Wait, yeah. that's a joke from something else, but I can't remember what it is. Talk soup. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's still from Joel McHale. I'm okay with that. So how about how about vampires, though? Oh, the chicks that suck blood. Yeah, how about vampire chicks, man? And, and it's not blood from your neck. It's blood from your puss. <laughs> I mean, not specifically in the story we're going to talk about, but sure, why not? I mean, that's that joke. The I think it is directly. What did, uh, what, what did one lesbian vampire say to the other? Spread them. <laughs> See you in 28 days. So those vampires and, and their... Yeah, method- but here's the thing. From my understanding, menstruation doesn't always work like clockwork like that. Well, no, it, it it's a joke. It it doesn't have to. So how about those vampires and their metaphors for, for sexuality and other things that made Victorians uncomfortable? 
And I mean, yes, I, I know vampire lore has existed long before the, the late 19th century, but whatever, I'm talking about these specific vampires and not Dracula, the other ones, the sexy ones, the lady, the lady ones, all, Brad you, Pitt. all you lady vampires in the audience. Um, no, not Brad Pitt. Brad Lena Pitt? <laughs> it's going in a very bad direction. I'm talking, of course, about Joseph Sheridan Lafanu, Lafanu? I mean, we got a thing going here. Why correct ourselves now? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, Not just gothic, but also sapphic vampire novella, Carmilla. Oh, Caramel. Caramilla. That was a caramel or caramel? Well, this one's spelled C-A-R-M-I-L-L-A, so there's not really a whole lot of wiggle room here. It's Carmilla. Carmilla. (laughs) Caramalia. I'm going to assume you've never read Carmilla. Nope. Have you ever heard of Carmilla? Oh, when I reported on this in the Dracula episode. Because I told you you did. You don't remember anything about it. But I did it. (laughs) You sure did, champ. So before this episode, I had never read Carmilla, um, but I had seen the mostly unrelated YouTube series. We'll get there eventually. But of course, you know, I'd heard plenty about that one lesbian vampire story that Bram Stoker potentially ripped off to make Dracula. And, I mean, it's Halloween. How can we not cover a classic piece of gothic literature that influenced a lot of vampire stories and eventual sort of modern vampire media and, you know, shed some sexy light on this lady vampire who actually predates everyone's favorite count by a whole 26 years. The answer is that we can't, and so we're doing it. So, happy Halloween, lesbians! This one's for you. Or bisexual women, also. Or non-binary people, like myself, who, who are, are in, into women. Or anyone who's just happy to see some blood-sucking ladies. This, this came out wrong. I fucked it up. It's not good. RJ, please rescue me from this hole that I've dug for myself and tell, tell us about the man behind the vampire lady. Kellyanne Conway kind of looks like I would imagine a vampire would look like. <laughs> Is Kellyanne Conway even a relevant joke anymore? I mean, when people talk about vampires in celebrity culture, most people point to, like, Keanu Reeves because he looks like he's been the same age forever. Yeah, well, 300 years will do that to you. Yeah. No, but he's still looking good. It's Kellyanne, so Kellyanne Conway's bad, bad, evil vampire, Keanu Reeves. Oh, that's on a bitter. Ah. <laughs> he got bit early. Did you never watch, like, True Blood? Explains no, it all. I absolutely never watched True Blood. Did you? Yeah. Was it just because it was made by the same guy who did Six Feet Under? I was a big part of it. Was True Blood any good? And it had a uh, rogue in it. I'm all about her. Can't even think of her name, though. All right. Um, and there were the two guys on there. Mm-hmm. They were both hot in their own special way. Didn't one of them have a dumb accent? That's the one thing I remember from, like, They pa- all had dumb accents. It happened somewhere in Louisiana. Did you just try to do, like, a <laughs> half-assed draw at the end there? <laughs> I forget the city. Like Baton Rouge. Oh, yeah, they all silly accents because they were part of like the Southern Vampire Confederacy. <laughs> there, there were different vampire groups. You see, some were from the north, some were from the south, some were from the west. No vampires from the east. Yeah, maybe like the northeast though. But they were assholes. Hey, I'm sucking blood here. Yeah, more Massachusetts. Matt, he says vamp this vampire sucking blood in the ad. That's right. Anyway, true blood. It respects all the rules. Okay. Allen Ball, baby. Well, why don't you talk about 
the, a man who wrote about vampires before Alan Ball did. Joseph Thomas Sheridan Lafanu. Did he have enough names? Born August 28th, 1814 and died February 7th, 1873. Joey Tommy Sherry Lafanny. Lafanny for short. Of course. Was born in Dublin, Ireland. He was a descendant of Huguenots which, if you aren't keeping score at home, are French Protestants, which kept a reformed form of Protestantism. Yes, Protestantism. 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 Definitely not. Protestantism. (laughs) Sure. Protestantism. Protestantism. (laughs) In short, they dislike Catholics. In particular the Catholic Church and the Pope, and were not all that great in number, and since they were different, they were persecuted. As the French would say, Kalevi. I love that I just glanced down to your notes and I see the direction mispronounced Kalevi as Kestlevi. <laughs> yeah, purposely mispronounced. That's the joke. I felt I'm in where I can. There you go. Daddy LaFanny was known as Thomas Philip LaFanu. Mommy Fanny was Emma Lucretia Dobbin. These are some wild names. Yeah. So he's French-Irish? Yeah. Okay. LaFanny had an older sister, Katie Francis, and a baby brother named Billy Dick. <laughs> Life ain't easy when you're named William Richard or Billy Dick. And speaking of Dick, this brings us to this week's... <laughs> Wait, what? Returning to old jokes with RJ. Oh, God, why? So, you may remember a few episodes ago, a certain topic came up. A very popular topic. Well, this week I saw a movie called Jexy. Wait, what did we talk about that was so popular that it has to do with Jexy? The brief synopsis of the movie is that this guy's phone becomes sentient and falls in love with him. The phone wants to order the guy food he likes. Isn't that just the plot of her? Play the music he rocks out to. But most importantly of all, she wants him to enjoy his favorite kind of porn. C. B. T. Right there, in a major motion picture. In fact, she starts to play it with the sounds and everything. Can we please get away from cock and ball torture on this literature podcast? They said in disbelief. <laughs> she even refers to the title of the video as Ball Bustin' Nine. <laughs> I was in shock for a few reasons. I didn't see this movie. One. The old ladies who were seeing the movie at 2 in the afternoon on a Monday thought this was the funniest shit ever. You lead such an exciting life. But two, just how normalized CBT has become that it's the focus of a 30 second gag in a major motion picture. And yet, many of you listeners did not even know what it is. A lot of our listeners are teens. They are teens. They don't need to know about cock and ball torture yet. I'm ashamed for you. If you do fall in that category. Well, Fanny is ashamed, yep. as is Billy Dick, as we don't want no prudes around here. It's not a prude thing. If you don't like cock and ball torture, that is perfectly fine. If you do like cock and ball torture, that is also perfectly fine. Please, God, can we talk about something else? You completely halted the biography of this man because you really want to keep bringing cock and ball torture back on this podcast. Well, here's the thing. Here's this guy's name's Billy. This guy's name's Billy Dick. Who's not even the guy who wrote the book? He is tangential at best. 
yes. And as soon as Dick was mentioned, it was, it was fresh on my mind. Of course it was. Because there I was sitting in the theater at 2 in the afternoon on a Monday going, <laughs> hey, wait. They're talking about the things we talk about. That's it. Relevancy. I got my finger on the pulse. The dick you pulse. Got, you guys going to say you got your finger on the cock and or balls. Hey, look, man. When you beat those things up, they swell up like a papaya. It's easy to find the vein. <laughs> I hate you so much. Speaking of Billy Dick and La Fanny, which is just a fancy way of saying vagina on the other side of the pond, which is backwards from what we say here in America, go figure. I did always wonder about that. The family they were born into included a bunch of playwrights and novelists and such. A smart, educated, well-read family. Daddy Fanny's main focus was being a clergyman, which is why the family moved to Royal Hibernin Military School, a school for children who were orphaned due to their parents being in the military. Daddy Wafani helped run the school as it had a religious tilt. So we've had some strange upbringings, but can you imagine living in an orphanage among orphans while you're living with your whole family and very much not being an orphan? That's gotta be a little awkward. I'd feel kind of weird. A little bit. The family lived there until Wafani was 12 when his father took up a rectorship and got the family a place of their own away from the orphans. <laughs> Among the rooms in the place was a library kept up by Daddy Fanny, and this was little the Fanny's favorite room. By 15, he was writing poetry. He only shared it with Mom, though, as Dad, being a God-fearing, strict Calvinist, well, he didn't raise no poet of a son, goddammit. We have no poets in this house, boy, which is a recurring theme here on Ono Lit Class. And so little the Fanny knew better than to share with Dad. Would have got his ass beat with a rolled-up Calvin and Hobbes comic or something. I don't think you know what Calvinism is. Yeah, th- these people, they pray to this little tiger and this little blonde boy. And they ride around like little red wagons. I'm up on this. Now, what I'm unclear about is how often does the tiger punch the kid in the balls? Bill Watterson, some, somewhere. Wait, is Bill Watterson dead or alive? He's still alive, right? If he's alive, he's going to come kill us. If he's dead, he's probably also going to find a way to come kill us because it's Halloween. Spooky. How many more ball jokes? Those have not been in there. I mean, I'm just out of women now. Those are just good extemporaneous ball jokes. (laughs) (laughs) The family fell onto hard financial times as Irish folks stopped being as religious or at least ardent about attending religious services as they had been. What stemmed the fall of financial ruin was that the government began to require everyone pay tithes to their local church, even if they're not attending services. This only worked for a bit, but eventually Daddy Fanny had to sell off some of the family library. Lucky for Lofani, it was time for him to get out of the house and go off and get himself a formal education. He studied law at Trinity College. If Trinity sounds familiar, it's because that was the name of Neo Sidekick in those Matrix movies. (laughs) Of course! In which a man became some sort of new age digital Jesus. Religious flick right there. We don't have time to unpack this, so let's just keep moving. It might also sound familiar because Trinity College is where people like Samuel Beckett, Jonathan Swift, and oh no, with class alum, Oscar Wilde, got their education on. Lafanny passed his exams and was called to the bar in 1839 at the age of 25, but he never practiced law and instead turned to journalism. During this time, he submitted stories to Dublin University Magazine, Dumb, <laughs> the Dublin Evening Mail, Dem, and The Warder. Can't short that one. No. He became the owner of the latter two publications a year later at 26. Yeah, what have you millennials done that's so good? This dude owned two newspapers, and he was 26. We have one shitty podcast. <laughs> no word on how fake the news they promulgated was. The first story he published was titled, 
The Ghost and the Bone Setter. A delightful tale of a ghost that set bone. In some pussy! There it is! Wow. Ca- wow. Casper was getting it. Lay that ghost pipe, boy. See, it's good to be a friendly ghost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know why that one hit so hard, but it did. Can you clap ghost cheeks? No, I get Would they, like, go right through each other? In 1844, Lafanny wedded a woman by the name of Susanna Bennett. Lafanny was 30, and over the next few years, him and his new wife fucked into existence the following. An Eleanor, an Emma, a George, and a Thomas. Three straight generations of Thomases in that family. As one does. Fuck, it's been a while for that trope. (sighs) Yeah. Perhaps the funnest part of the wedding, though, was their official witness, Isaac Butt. (laughs) So this sordid tale has a fanny... A billy dick, and now a butt. This is the tale we were born to tell. It really is. This butt in particular was a celebrated barrister. Barrister Butt. (laughs) Excuse me, I would like to call on my lawyer, uh, Mr. Butt Esquire. Barrister Butt was also one of the politicians who actually cared about the Irish famine and wrote a 40-page article outlining the problem to Parliament, which was an effort supported by the Irish fanny. It's like a superhero show. Fanny and the Butt. <laughs> Barrister Butt with his sidekick Irish Fanny and his brother Billy Dick. Only on CBS this fall. America's most watched network. That is definitely not a CBS show. That's that's some Skinamax shit. That is CBS. They <laughs> lean into the jokes. During the marriage, Fanny allowed his religion to lapse. Well, his wife married who she thought was a nice religious boy from a religious family. This, and I'm going to phrase this based on how biographers phrased this, led her to have her own crisis of faith, which led her to having, quote, increasing neurotic symptoms that manifested itself in the form of panic attacks. So she was so anxious about her husband not being religious anymore that it made her be like, shit, am I religious? To the point where she gave herself panic attacks. I don't think she ever questioned her own faith. It's just that her husband was not as religious as he had once been. She had panic attacks because of that. Hey, man, anxiety recognizes anxiety. This led wife Fanny to the pious and not sexual arms of Brother Billy Dick, who remained devoutly religious. But going to religious services with her brother-in-law did not scratch that needed itch. And so she remained miserable, and this led to marital distress. Eventually, this snowballed to the point that she suffered an out-and-out hysterical attack and died the next day. Wow, an actual, for real, outside of a novelization, death by hysteria. She got so upset that Wafani wouldn't go to church anymore, didn't pray to God anymore. She worked herself up so much, she killed herself. There's gotta be more to this story. This doesn't track. Uh, That's what her biographers say. If she worked herself up into such a tizzy that she fucking died, I feel like there's more at play that we're just not aware of. That's what they say. You worked her up so much. Such a big panic attack. Great. Now I have to... And now I can stay up late worrying that one day I'm going to anxiety myself to death. But yeah, can you think of a more Victorian way to go? What do you mean? (laughs) You don't think people could die of panic attacks? Of course people could die of panic attacks. You'd have to be one hell of a fucking panic... I mean, as a person who has had many panic attacks, you definitely feel like you're going to die sometimes. But like, that's a hell of a fucking panic attack. Yep palpitations at least a heart attack i don't want to know why that's so yeah, unbelievable because your heart has to be really kind of fucked up already did she like have a heart condition that was like documented unclear there you go maybe she was vaping she was just vaping so hard 
to, to for the anxiety. Rip, wife of Wafani. Sorry, your existential religious crisis of self-identity did you in. It was 1858. Wafani, based on his diaries, was sad about the whole thing and kind of felt guilty about it. Maybe he should have loved Jesus more. Mm. Wafani did not write for three years after his wife's death, until after the death of his mother. A lot of Wafani's early work focused on Irish folklore. This was not a commercial hit, even though it was objectively good work. His publisher, Dick Bentley... You're shitting me. Oh, look. Another dick. <laughs> okay, is it Richard Bentley and you're just shortening it? Or is what did you actually come across it as Dick Bentley? Oh, that's what I'm unsure. The other ones were, well, one of them was Richard. You're just planting false dicks. Richard is dick. Yeah, but if they didn't go by it. Well, they're going by it now. Ah. Stop me. Because our jar says so. <laughs> yeah, Dick Bentley. Anyway, his publisher, Dick Bentley, uh, signed Wafani to a contract that Wafani would write stories focused on English subjects in the modern time. These works were published serially and then in more conventional novel forms as they do well. Stuff like Uncle Silas, which was his most commercially successful work. Wafani died of a heart attack in 1873 at the age of 58. A biographer said that the heart attack was due to sheer fright, but offered no elaboration as to what possibly scared Wafani to death. But based on this tale, I assume it was a huge dick. His fanny was just a dick magnet. Wait, so and wait, it was so so wait, big, he, and he, he was has recorded afraid. as having died of fright, sheer fright. Like, That's like, the term. Like fucking Charles Baskerville. <laughs> sheer fright's what did him in. Like we just did this. Was was he attacked by a ghost town, and it scared him well, so much that he died? We don't know. While Lafini's work was not highly respected at the time, the influence he has had on the horror genre and on heavyweights who have ridden in the field has led people to re-examine his work. Much like Poe, Lafani focuses on the mood of horror and not outright jump scares. He writes about the macabre and the strange. Oh, like, come on, you gotta say it right. The macabre! Both are acceptable. Like demonic monkeys and supernatural deaths, or even vampires, like in the focus of today's episode. The vampire story that predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 27 years is the date I have, sucker. I'm Wiki- giving him an Wikipedia extra year. Wikipedia says 26. Not that anyone's counting. No, of course not. So Carmilla is not an Irish folk story. No, it's a story responding to the climate of the time. Much like Jico and Hyde, it's a tale focused on the sexual mores of the time, specifically the repression of sexuality, as well as the duplicity of having a public and private persona. But I'll leave the plot up to Megan to discuss. However, before I turn it over, I must mention that one of LaFanny's work that Megan did not want to cover is Wait, titled... What do you mean, did I did not want to cover? This was never brought up to me. I don't even know what the fuck it is. The Cock and Anchor. You are full of shit. No. Which would have worked as the title of Ono oh class if Megan had been truthful. <laughs> I didn't know this existed until this moment, and I still don't quite believe you. The Cock and Anchor. The Cock and Anchor. Hey everybody, it's Megan. Happy Halloween. Happy spook times. I hope that you're going to get a lot of candy, Halloween, good costumes, spooky sex. I don't know. I, I don't know how you spend your Halloween. 
I think I'm spending mine. I feel like I'm starting to get sick. So, you know, that's cool. Um, let that be a reminder to get your flu shots. Ooh. Because nothing spookier than a lack of proper vaccination. Although I did get my flu shot. And I'm, I'm starting to feel pretty cruddy anyway. So I want, I want a refund on that shit. They juiced me up with the bad stuff. Um, also, I know I was supposed to be going back to Pod Pals, and I, I don't have I don't have one right now. Not because I don't have an abundance of, of pals who do pods, but they gotta send me their trailers and shit, man. Hey, pods. Pods that are my pals. Send me your goddamn trailers. I know I've asked you guys for some. And then I will listen, and I'll play them. So do that for me. Come on. Be a fucking pal. And let me help promote your show. Asshole. I'm sorry, I'm feeling very, I, I just, I gotta be feeling confrontational because I'm not feeling well. But I'm certainly feeling well enough to tell you about some folks that, <laughs> they're creepy and they're kooky. They're all a little spooky. They're all together ooky. They're the reason that we're able to put this show out. That's right, they're our patrons. And they're all beautiful and amazing and potentially the Adams family. I don't know, I haven't looked that far into it. And they also include our newest members, Susanna, Nathaniel, and Caden. So thank you all for contributing and and just helping us keep this merry-go-round of books and dongs a twirling. So enjoy the rest of the episode and prepare yourself for the relentless onslaught of everyone being like, now it's time for Christmas. So, uh, yeah, like you said, book about sexual oppression, duplicity, public-private personas, and also that gay shit. So, first off, I gotta say, the language in Carmilla was surprisingly difficult, um, in a way that's kind of hard for me to explain. Drop some bars. I'm gonna. So you, you brought up Edgar Allan Poe and that I, that thing where it's just sort of, like, dense, uh, atmospheric language. This didn't feel like that to me. It, it almost reads like it's been translated into English, but with like an automatic translator. So a lot of the sentence structure just feels really weird and stilted. Oh, doy, doy, doy. oh child, you're going to read about the vampire, yeah? That was racist, and I'm not even 100% sure who it was racist towards, because that was a horrible Irish accent. Yeah, so I just, it led to me like reading the same sentence like multiple times trying to parse it. For example, here's a bit of our intro where Le Fanu, Le Fanu, who, who even knows, does that super irritating thing that was just all the rage in classic literature, found footage bullshit. Hello, I need potato, I'm very hungry, we have famine. That is not, what the fuck kind of voice is that? Irish. I, Irish. Help. Help. Yeah, help. Help. No potato. Oh my god. Potato can't. We must eat babies. I read pamphlet. Jonathan Swift say so. So, he's not the writer of this story. He's just some guy who found the papers of the strange Dr. Martin Hesselius. Actually, all the stories collected in A Glass Darkly, which is the collection that Carmilla is in, which was published in 1872, are presented as selections from the posthumous papers of the occult Dr. Martin Hestulus, which apparently makes him the first occult detective in literature, despite not really actually being a character. Ah, you might say, so we are reading the story from Dr. Hestulus's perspective then, right? Yeah. No, oh. idiot. We're actually reading a recorded account from a totally different person who Dr. Hesley has got the story from. 
It's like when we did Call of Cthulhu. It's it's another fucking seven-layer dip of narrative separation, and I hate it. But more importantly, the language issues. So here's uh, Lefanu being like, Hey, I found these neat papers compiled by this Hesleyus character telling a wild story. And I quote. Don't take my word for it. <laughs> well, he says, quote, Upon a paper attached to the narrative which follows, Dr. Hesleyus has written a rather elaborate note which he accompanies with a reference to his essay on the strange subjects which the manuscript illuminates. The mysterious subject he treats in that essay with his usual learning and acumen, and with remarkable directness and condensation. It will form but one, of, but one volume of the series of that extraordinary man's collected papers. As I publish the case in this volume, simply to interest the laity, I shall forestall the intelligent lady who relates it in nothing. And after due consideration, I have determined, therefore, to abstain from presenting any presses of the learned doctor's reasoning, or extract from his statement on a subject which he describes as involving, not improbably, some of the profoundest arcana of our dual existence and its intermediates. I feel like I just read a fucking legal document. Like, what the fuck? That's spooky for all the wrong reasons! The long and short of it is that he found this neat story from good old Dr. Hesleyus, and he's gonna leave out all the doctor's notes on it, so why even do this narrative frame, but whatever. And he goes on further to say that he was so interested in the story relayed by the woman it happened to, who we'll get to, but he won't, because as he tells the reader, he tried to reach her after reading the story to find out more, only to discover that she was dead. Womp womp. Consumption. Well, it doesn't say. Hysterical. We, we, we don't know. This preemptively deceased protagonist and narrator is Laura. She's 19 when most of the story takes place and is recounting it now in her late 20s. But anyway, Laura lives with her wealthy, widowed father in a fancy castle in the middle of nowhere in Styria, which is Austria. I'm going to read some of her opening narration, again, just to convey the dissonance between like what I thought I was going to be reading, like this like, ooh, spooky, sexy, and then what I got. So like, this is how she starts the story. In Styria, we, though by no means magnificent people, inhabit a castle, or schloss. A small income in that part of the world goes a great way. Eight or nine hundred a year does wonders. Scantily enough, ours would have answered among wealthy people at home. My father is English, and I bear an English name, although I never saw England. But here in this lonely and primitive place, where everything is so marvelously cheap, I really don't see how ever so much more money would at all materially add to our comforts or even luxuries. I must tell you now, how very small is the party who constitute the inhabitants of our castle. I don't include servants, or those dependents who occupy rooms in the buildings attached to the slosh. Schloss. <laughs> Listen and wonder. My father, who is the kindest man on earth, but growing old, and I, at the date of my story, only nineteen. Eight years have passed since then. Talks like fucking Yoda. Like, Dracula may have stolen some stuff from Carmilla, but at least the characters talked like people. Like, I want to enjoy some weird gothic hot lady vampire shit. Not decipher the goddamn Rosetta Stone. So basically. Basically. Laura's dad is rich. Or at least, rich enough. Which is the thing Laura gets hung up on a lot. She's lonely living out in the Austrian woodlands with no friends, and the closest village being the sad and abandoned ruins of the Karnstein Estates. Can you hear the music of the mountain people? It's what? the sound of music. A song they sing up I, there in Austria. I don't know. What the fuck? Sound of music, man. 
Is there a line in The Sound of Music that says, can you hear the music of the mountain people? <laughs> I think so. Like, I, the thing I know is, the hills are alive with uh, the sound yeah, of... people. <laughs> with the sound of mountain be- Holy shit! That's the hill Holy shit. So, you thought the hills were alive with the sound of music was, can you hear the music of the mountain people? Yep. <laughs> Fuck. Can you hear the hill music? Can you feel the hill people music? Because that's what you're doing. You're doing the Lion King. That's that's the tune you're doing. Oh, so they stole it, huh? So, yeah. Uh, Karnstein Estates. Remember that name. Karnstein. It'll be a thing. Anyway, apart Karnstein. Karnstein. Apart from her dad, Laura also lives with Madame Peridon and Mademoiselle de la Fontaine, which is a really cool name for a governess. It should be the name of like a cool magical assassin or something. Mademoiselle de la Fontaine. Anyway, Laura comments that Mademoiselle de la Fontaine spoke French and German, and Peridon spoke French and bad English, and while German was the language of the land, Laura's dad, originally from England, made sure she also spoke English, and so her house was just a horrible mashup of confusing language mess, and you know what? That might actually explain some things. Aside from being lonely, Laura has led an otherwise pampered, sheltered life, and because of this, she tells us she can very easily remember the first time she got her giblets freaked, at the age of six when she has a nightmare of crying alone in bed, when a beautiful lady appears at the edge of her bed and then rubs her hands all over her face. Like, talks about her caressing her face, and I just picture her just being like, (laughs) And then she gets into bed with her, and while this comforts Laura, if you're thinking it's going into bad touch territory, then you're absolutely right, because as this eerily beautiful woman soothes Laura back to sleep, she suddenly feels the sensation of two needles being stabbed into her breast, and that is a bad touch. And she wakes up screaming, and all her maids rush in, but don't find anything out of the ordinary, either in the room or on Laura's skin. Although one maid notes that the spot on the bed next to Laura is still warm. That's what happens when you piss the bed. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. So, that is uh, creepy and terrible, and I didn't like it one bit. The metaphor groundwork of purity and innocence being disrupted by the dangers of abnormal sexuality, like we see in Dracula, is, is, is clearly being laid here. Except this is a child, so gross. Let's jump ahead to 19-year-old Laura, who is, you know, relatively speaking, still pretty young, but, you know, at the age of consent, when one would be getting comfortable with their sexuality, all I've done is make myself more uncomfortable, I'm moving on. So how old was she originally, 11? Six. Six? Yeah. Yeah, That's early. Yes. Now she's 19. So Laura was pretty haunted by this incident, because when your life is so comfortably boring that you literally never felt fear until you were six, what a life, I guess it tends to stick with you. It makes her father even more overprotective of her. And then one day when they're outside together admiring a sunset, because that's literally all there is to do, he has to break it to her that a visit she was expecting from this general guy and his niece, it was Laura's age, will not be happening, because the girl has died due to a mysterious illness. This bums Laura out, because being the sole vivacious teenager in a hundred mile radius kind of sucks. Instead, it's just her, her dad, and the Mademoiselle's Paradon and De La Fontaine! And I just want to read a bit from it again, because just this text is just wild, you guys. Madame Peridone was fat, middle-aged, and romantic, and talked inside poetically. Mademoiselle de la Fontaine, in right of her father, who was a German, assumed to be psychological and metaphysical and something of a mystic, now declared that when the moon shone with a light so intense, it was well known that it indicated a special spiritual activity. 
So Madame Peridone is both fat and romantic. Like, you know, not, not just one or the other, but both at the same time. Uh, it's very important. Meanwhile, Mademoiselle de la Fontaine apparently knows moon magic from her dad's side of the family, which is fucking rad, and I wish we could hear more about that. But Laura's still sad about her dead almost friend and wishes it weren't so. And Laura's dad quotes Shakespeare, but the gist of it can be summed up by our modern-day Shakespeare, George Lucas. I've got a bad feeling about this. And as he says this, a carriage appears out of nowhere, and Laura's like, ooh, that's a fancy carriage. I bet someone important's inside. But it sure isn't fancy for long, because it immediately slams into a fucking tree. Out of the wreckage, a woman emerges with servants carrying a young lady around Laura's age out of it. What a convenient random carriage accident out here in the middle of nowhere, Austria, carrying a suitable friend for Laura, you might say. What a convenient random carriage accident out here in the middle of nowhere, Austria, carrying a suitable friend for Laura. Yes, it sure is. <laughs> Especially when Laura's- Who is Laura? The fucking protagonist. <laughs> The, the pro- one telling the, the story. The, the, yes, the one telling the story. No, you're telling the story. I hate you. Uh, when Laura's dad rushes out to help and the woman says, and, and yes, here's another direct quote, I can't help it, you need to hear it. She says, who was ever being so born to calamity, I heard her say with clasped hands as I came up. Here am I on a journey of life and death in prosecuting which to lose an hour is possibly to lose all. My child will not have recovered sufficiently to resume her route for who can say how long. I must leave her. I cannot, dare not delay. How far on, sir, can you tell is the nearest village? I must leave her there and shall not see my darling or even hear of her till my return three months hence. That's a lot. That's a fucking lot. That's feelings. What is this journey? Why is it so important? Why does this woman prefer to abandon her daughter in a random village for three months over just giving her five fucking minutes to catch her breath after hitting a fucking tree? What is this woman running from? You keep going. That doesn't answer my question, but what what is it? Freddy Krueger. Ah, yeah, you think? It is long arms. That's a weird pull. That's what happens. (laughs) He used some long arms in that movie. I guess. Oh, I guess. I'm pretty sure that's what happens. His arms, like, reaches for the kids with the little scissor fingers. Well, whatever it is, Laura doesn't give a shit. She just sees a potential new friend and is all, Papa, can we adopt this complete and total stranger into our home for three months with no real guarantee her mother will ever actually come back? I would like to ever so much, Papa. Uh, Her dad's like, yeah, sure, I don't say anything about this, why not? And neither does the girl's mom, because she kisses her kid on the cheek and is just like, okay, love you, gotta go, bye! And just like that, there's a new occupant down at the Schloss, and she's very upset that her mother has abandoned her to live with a bunch of randos, which is a perfectly reasonable response, but one that really bums Laura out. She's told to give the girl some space to breathe, they take her inside, and the two nurses, uh, Peridon and Mademoiselle de la Fontaine, tend to her and walk out of the bedroom they've placed her in, and they're just like, wow, she's the prettiest girl we've ever seen. But also, since this is a book about the terrifying other, they also have to talk about how the carriage servants all looked mean and evil and not white, because of course, and also that there was a second woman in the carriage who looked the most evil and was explicitly not white and also wore a turban. It's the late 1800s and we're writing novels. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Laura's dad reports that the girl's mom told her that she was prone to seizures, but is a good girl. And also don't bother asking her why her mother had to run away for three months. She's not going to say, so just forget the whole thing. And that includes you too, reader slash listener. 
Because, spoiler alert, we never get a fucking answer. You don't deserve an answer. Apparently, Joseph Sheridan, whatever the fuck. A fanny. He thought we didn't either. <laughs> Everything can't be given to you, millennials, on a fucking silver platter. You are a millennial. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Nope. Finally, the girl wakes up and asks to see Laura, who is just bursting with excitement over meeting her definitely, absolutely new best friend for life. She gets a good look at this girl's face and realizes in shock that she recognizes her. Now, where do you think she recognizes her from? The mirror. No. This is not a parent trap situation. They are not twins. Mm, bed. Uh, I mean, yeah, kind of. It's, it's Your dreams. It's, yes. You did it. You did it. I'm so proud of you. Get out of my, my dreams, dreams and into, into my, my schloss. <laughs> My car. She recognizes her from that uncomfortably sexual dream she had 12 years ago. This was the beautiful face she saw at the edge of her bed. She'd never been so wet before. Gross. Stop. Please stop. But before Laura can relate this, the other girl, whose name we could probably get from context clues, is Carmilla, but I just want to point out that in the text itself, no one's bothered to ask her yet. She gasps at Laura and says that she saw Laura's face in a dream 12 years ago in a similarly uncomfortable sexual dream. Mm. I was sitting right on your face. No. I looked down and there were your eyes. Gross. She says she remembers waking up to hear Laura crying, crawling into bed to comfort her, and then when Laura screamed, falling out of bed and waking up back in her own room. Presumably also six years old? Which raises some questions, but we'll get there. The important thing right now is that neither girl is weirded out by this, and it instead brings them closer together as friends. As happens. Also, they both keep saying how incredibly beautiful the other one is, but in like a, a totally platonic, friendly way, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so begins a friendship of the ages with Carmilla and Laura. Laura is sad that Carmilla doesn't seem to trust Laura enough to reveal anything other than the vaguest details about who she is, where she comes from, and what's going on with her family. While Carmilla, meanwhile, doesn't understand why Laura can't just stop asking stupid questions and kiss her on the mouth already. When Carmilla does get all touchy-feely, in the very literal sense, not not the emotion sense, please, nope, don't do that, nope, showering Laura with tender embraces and gentle whispers and little kisses and such, Laura is split between feelings of repulsion and disgust, but also, you know, just, just being kind of into it, you know. Just gals being pals. And then Carmilla's just like, I love you. And and Laura's like, as as a true deep friend, right? And Carmilla says, no, in the gay way. And Laura has this moment where she's like, oh my God, Carmilla must be insane or potentially a male suitor in disguise. <laughs> because that's more likely than gay feelings, I guess. Yeah, who the fuck's <laughs> gay, man? You know, Carmilla must definitely be a just a really pretty dude. That would explain the tenting. <laughs> would explain her boner. And uh, at some point, when a, a shipment of restored heirloom paintings just kind of arrives, Laura finds a portrait of her ancestor, Macarla, Countess of Karnstein, dated uh, 1698. The portrait also resembles Carmilla. Like, exactly. Like, d- all the way down to, like, a, a special mole that she has. And... They're all like, that's kind of weird. And Carmilla's like, I don't, I don't know, maybe that's my great, 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 great aunt or something. Hey, kiss me on the mouth, maybe. And then they drop it. Meanwhile, peasant girls all over the area have started mysteriously dying off. And Carmilla's like, gross, who cares? They're peasants. Also, death comes to us all. Hey, Laura, kiss me on the fucking mouth already. One night, 
They go out for a walk in the moonlight. And Laura's just like, this is nice. And Carmilla's like, I have never loved anyone but you, Laura. You are my one and only. And also, you would die for me, right? And Laura's like, this is no longer nice. I mean, I guess. Mmm, <laughs> okay. Carmilla is a thirsty bitch and also potentially sociopathic, but you know, whatever. Well, when you've been in the Sahara your whole life, you know. <laughs> the point is that she is way too direct for Laura and her incredibly deeply repressed feelings of sexuality that are practically subterranean. They are buried so far down. So Carmilla tries a more subtle approach, as we are to assume from a nightmare Laura has where a giant black cat appears in her room, she feels something biting into her titty, and then sees Carmilla standing at the edge of the bed, nightgown open. And then... I really want to stress how much I am not making this up. This is exactly what happens. Carmilla slowly leaves the room, scooching out inch by inch. <laughs> Just like, because they they make a point to say that, like, she starts getting closer and closer to the door, but without actually moving. So it's just like, ee, 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 and then leaves. <laughs> and it's just like, gotta bite your titty. Oh, I am Carmilla. Okay, bye. Scooch, scooch, scooch. <laughs> she was thinking about the titty as she left. It's just so weird. And uh, she's out the door and Laura's just like, what the fuck was that? She's not so good at the levitation thing. No, only in little bursts. Laura's super freaked out by the dream, but also doesn't tell anyone about it, lest they think she's gonna les out on them or something. And is her titty all sore? Uh, yes, her titty is all sore. And Carmilla wakes up later in the day and is just like, yes, I also had a spooky dream about black clouds or or something heterosexual i don't know and then laura begins to change in a way that is very similar to lucy from dracula uh once she gets vampire infected meaning that she gets very goth and also mature to the ways of the world yeah she's a big girl now she thinks about death and stuff she's no longer pure and innocent and she dreams about being held by and kissing mysterious women that are definitely for sure not carmilla well, you know, they call orgasms the little death. Mm-hmm. And now she's just like, oh, in my dreams, I can be hella gay. <laughs> she's starting to look pretty bad, though. Pale, thin, and sickly, as all- Speak for yourself. <laughs> Pale, thin, and sickly? Oh, yeah. As all good, slowly dying Victorian girls must do. I'm kink-shaming you. Carmilla tries to draw attention away from it, like, yes, me too. I also look like I'm dying. This is just a thing that's happening. Like, like a cool teen trend. Like Fortnite dancing. Then one night, Laura has another dream, but in this one, her dead mother whispers to her to beware the assassin, before showing her a vision of Carmilla bathed in blood. Laura wakes up like, oh no, I bet this dream means that Carmilla's in trouble, and runs to check on her while her ghost mom presumably face palms in frustration. Like, no, that's that's not what you were meant to take away from that one, kid. How- <laughs> Jimmy's in trouble. <laughs> However, when entering Carmilla's room, Laura discovers that... Carmilla's not there. Actually, that that's it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, was, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, she, Carmilla has mysteriously disappeared. There's no mystery there. From the inside of a locked room. Yeah, she's in my bunk. <laughs> she's missing for almost an entire day before reappearing back we in her busy. room. Oh, gross. And being like, I, I don't know what happened, don't ask me. And Laura's dad writes it off as simple sleepwalking, because Laura's dad is also dumb as hell. Finally, Laura starts to look so corpse-like that her dad calls a doctor, and then purposely keeps whatever the doctor's diagnosis is from her. 
Because it's not like she's entitled to know what she's sick with, seeing as she's a small child and nope, she's 19. Maybe tell your kid what she's afflicted with, my dude, even if the answer is vampire stuff. Honestly, like, what, what good can come of not telling Laura why she's sick? She could become hysterical and die from the stress. <laughs> yeah. Although, honestly, it's not like Laura tries very hard to figure it out. I guess she's just used to not knowing things and not asking questions about it. Maybe it, there was no WebMD back in the 1900s. It's 1800s. not a, a matter of WebMD. It's that she sees a doctor and it's like, well, what did the doctor say? And her dad's just like, none of your business. Yeah, don't, don't wear your pretty little head. Ah, <laughs> oh, I hate that shit. Us men, we gotta figure it out. Mm-hmm. Especially, well, yeah, well, yeah, we're gonna see that later. But either way, she's uh, definitely distracted by things like death and her conflicting feelings of fear and horniness towards Carmilla. And man, if that doesn't describe the first crush I had on a girl. Whooey! Conflicting feelings of fear and horniness. So then they get a letter from General Spielsdorf. You know, that one guy who was supposed to visit with his niece, but then the niece died mysteriously of an unspecified illness, and I didn't bother to say his name before because I, I didn't care. Well, now he's coming to visit, and also completely hijack the story for five entire chapters of this 16-chapter novella. That's, what, like, about 10%? It's like six would be 10%, right? Of six... Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, God. Six shut out up. of 16 shut is up. 10%? Shut up. No, shut up. Six out of 60 is 10%? Shut up. Now, as someone who works in the service industry, whose pay is based upon tips. Yeah. Let's walk through this one. No, let's not walk through this one. I realized how wrong I was as soon as I said it. Six out of 16 chapters would be more than a third. Okay. So how? what percentage is five out of 16 chapters? Five out of 16? I think it's a... Oh. Well, because I was rounding up. Wait, you're on it from five to six. Well, six and sixteen. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. What percentage is five of sixteen chapters? Just below a third. Okay. So, so for almost a third of the story, he just comes in and is like, "It's General Spielsdorf's story now, fuckers." You think he understood statistics? I don't fucking know. It was eighteen nine seven? It was. It was a while ago. I don't. Maybe. Fuck. So, sir, excuse me, you are getting in the way of my ethereal, demonic, lesbian romance? Like, kindly fuck off. Instead, Laura, her dad, and Madame Paradon, but not Mademoiselle de la Fontaine, meet up with the general at the Karnstein Ruins, because he's looking for something there that will help him cleanse the world of a great and terrible evil. Dun, dun, dun. And then we get, again... Five whole chapters of backstory in which General Spiels a lot recounts a distressingly familiar story. He and his niece, who who does actually have a name that I've been neglecting because it's Bertha, were at a masquerade party where a beautiful young woman around Bertha's age bumped into her and took a very sudden interest. Who's this mysterious girl suddenly coming up on this other girl being like, hey. Laura. No. It's Malarca. (laughs) Mallorca? Nope, Malarca. Which is a really lazy anagram for it's Car- Carmilla. It, I guess it's not as bad as Dracula going by Alucard, as he does in, in, in many adaptations. It's just fucking Dracula backwards, but I think that's just because uh, Alamrak doesn't really sound like a name. 
Although neither does Malarca, really, but more to the point, Bertha, who is a lonely girl with no friends and not even a governess with a super cool name and moon-sensing powers, is quickly enamored with Malarca, while the general is talking with the mom, and he's like, don't I know you? And she's like, maybe? And he's like, well, either tell me or take off your masquerade mask and let me see. And she's like, I could do that. Or... I could come back in three weeks and do it if you watch over my daughter while I'm gone because I have a super important life or death mission I have to do right now even though we're at a ball and my daughter can't come with me because reasons. In hindsight, the general's like, yeah, there were some red flags, but Bertha just wanted a friend so badly that he agreed. And then the girl cried their mom left her and went home with them where she looked sickly and sleepwalked a lot. Then Bertha started looking sickly and complaining about feeling like someone was chomping on her breast while she slept. And Laura's just like, OMG, those dreams sound like my dreams. And Malarca sleepwalking and being weird sounds like Carmilla doing those things. Maybe they know each other. <laughs> She's so dumb. It's it's not even a good anagram. Anyway. Carmack. Lamika. Lamarki. You're welcome. You're welcome. Anyway, at the Karnstein ruins, where they meet up with the general, uh, he pauses his story to accost a random woodman out gathering some wood as woodmen do, and is like, hey, do you know where Macarla Karnstein's grave is? So we got a Carmilla, a Malarca, and a Macarla. So she's not putting a lot of effort into this these, these pseudonyms. And the woodman's like, fuck if I know, this village was ravaged by vampires, like, ages ago. So, you know, it's all coming together now. So General Speckenspiel finishes his story by saying he got a doctor to diagnose Bertha, but when she was diagnosed with vampire, he was like, bullshit. But he hid in Bertha's wardrobe while she slept, and saw Malarca sneak into the room as a cat, turn back, and attack Bertha. He leapt out and tried to kill Malarca, but she got away, and then Bertha died the next day. Laura is terrified of the story, and worried about Carmilla also getting attacked by this mysterious Macarla. And oh my god, Laura, you sweet, adorable, goddamn idiot. And just then, Carmilla appears. Just... And the general tries to murder her, but she vanishes again. And the general is like, Malarca and Macarla and Carmilla are all the same person. And Laura's like, what? And she she does like the, the surprise Pikachu face. Like, the, this, is, this is an audio medium, but we both just did the thing. So while they're all standing in the middle of the ruins, still in this, the next to last chapter, a mysterious figure enters who the general introduces as Baron Vortenberg. Because that's the one thing this story needed, another old dude, here to make sure this dangerous lesbian and her evil dark femininity is put to rest. So yeah, Baron Vordenberg just kind of shows up out of the blue and is like, hey, I'm descended from a long line of vampire killers, and hey, there's the grave you were looking for, BTW, and reveals the grave of the Countess Macarla, and everyone's like, cool, we're gonna kill the vampire, Laura, go home. But Laura d- does exactly that. And doesn't find out what happens until three days later. And then just kind of tells us about it, which is really lame. The group of manly men types open Carmilla's grave. They find her lying in vampire sleep in seven inches of blood, which is metal as fuck. And then they stake her, cut off her head, and burn it, etc., etc. And Laura just hears about it secondhand. Boo. Then there's more background on Varen Borden, Varen Borden, Varen, Varen Borden, fuck, who gives a shit? Carmilla's dead. Laura finishes her tale, recounting that her dad took her on a tour of Italy for over a year to get over it. But she never really did, and sometimes still imagines Carmilla, and thinks she can hear her at the door. Whether this is in a, a frightened way or a horny way, well, we may never truly know. Ooh.
And that's Carmilla. It's kind of disappointing. I'm sorry, lesbians. Here's the thing. Carmilla had a lot of different options she could have went with. Yeah. Lilac arm or <laughs> lilac ram. Or how about clam rail? <laughs> Hello. I'm coming to live with you. My name is Clam Rail. Or Clam Wire. <laughs> My name is Clam Rail Karnstein. <laughs> yeah. Deathless Vampire. I like Lilac Arm. <laughs> How about Rika Mall? Eh, not as funny. Wow. I'm just saying. So let's talk real quick about adaptations and influences. So even if Carmilla failed to reach the pop culture critical mass that Dracula has, she's still done pretty well for herself, with a wide array of adaptations in various media that has clearly been influenced by it. There's actually so much that I had to kind of limit it to, like, the most interesting stuff. So first, let's look at the similarities between Carmilla and Dracula. Namely, much like Lefanu... Stoker uses the conceit of compiled notes and found evidence to create a first-person narrative. Although, so did, like, every other gothic writer around that time period, as we've come to discover here on Oh No Lit Class, so, I mean, I would let that one slide, personally. And I guess there's some similarities with, like, the weird inherent sexiness of, like, being a ruined woman and, oh, lady sex is, is bad. Who, and also sleepwalking. A lot of sleepwalking. Also, people make the argument that Dr. Van Helsing is just a knockoff Baron Vordenberg. To which I say, those are both dope names. Really, though, it's like Bram Stoker sat down and was like, this is good, but let's dial back on that gay shit and, hmm, I feel like this is just missing something. What could it be? Ah, yes, of course. My inherent racist fear of Eastern Europe and also a gun-toting cowboy man from Texas. Nailed it. Anne Rice, resident vampire lover and insane person, cites Carmilla as an influence, and also a bunch of people have tried to write sequels to the story, but the only one that I think matters, literally at all, is one that I have admittedly not read, but am definitely going to read now, called European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman by Theodora Goss. Published in 2018 and apparently book two in something called the Extraordinary Adventures of the Athena Club series, it, quote, features a heroic Carmilla and her partner, Laura Hollis, aiding the Athena Club in their fight against Abraham Van Helsing. Tor.com's review of the novel states, It's utterly delightful to see Goss's version of Carmilla and Laura, a practically married couple, living happily in the Austrian countryside and venturing forth to kick ass and take names. Literally fuck any other book adaptation of Carmilla, I no longer care, I need to read this one. Not a book but a magazine periodical. Carmilla is the name of a Japanese lesbian erotic lifestyle magazine. Which is a thing. I'm delighted to report that Wikipedia tells me that the magazine is named after Leif News vampire because, quote, Carmilla draws hetero women into a world of love between women. In the world of film, Carmilla was first adapted as a Danish film called Vampire, with a, with a Y, in 1932 by Carl Dreyer, minus all that gay shit. In 1960, we got a sexy French version by Roger Vadim, a director whose best-known works are apparently, quote, visually lavish with erotic qualities, <laughs> called Et Mourir de Plaisir, which translates literally to And Die of Pleasure. That was called Blood and Roses in the U.S., which, while still very cool, is completely different. Also, the U.S. version censored the hot lady sexual tension because, of course, we did. Then noted monster people Hammer Films took a crack at it in the 70s, and in 2005 there was a direct-to-DVD animated movie, Dracula vs. The Batman. Carmilla is the bride of Dracula, which 
Wow, that's gay erasure right there. Who he's trying to resurrect using the soul of Bruce Wayne's sometimes girlfriend, Vicki Vale. In 2009, Carmilla was the main bad guy in the movie Lesbian Vampire Killers, which starred Paul McGann of Doctor Who fame and James Corden, that guy who people need to stop casting in animated movies because he's basically British Josh Gad now, and I hate him. I mean, I guess I don't hate him, but he's really annoying. Anyway, Carmilla shows up in the Castlevania series. She is referenced in the previously mentioned HBO show True Blood, blah, blah, blah. The one that enterprising young gays of today are looking for is the indie YouTube series released in 2014, where Laura is a straight-laced modern college student who gets a dark, mysterious, and yes, very sexy roommate named Carmilla. And they're like, two to five minute long webcam style like diary episodes but they're just they're so cute and great and you should watch them there's three seasons the plot gets absolutely buck wild and apparently they made a movie in 2017 and i didn't know that so like i got some media to consume but yeah carmilla look it up on youtube it's it's really good it, it doesn't have anything to do with the fucking book although there is a there is a la fontaine and so this brings us to the part of the show that we always get to and that is, hey, RJ. Sup? Carmilla. Yep. Spooky, scary, good, bad, sexy. Carmilla is good. Yeah? I mean, we had the Germans doing their whole vampire thing first, I suppose, going a little bit before all of this. But when it came to the English language, you're first in the door. You get some extra credit. It's true. And everyone copied from you from there. And with a news writing style, I'm told. And I saw for myself reading this, because I read this for real. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like Wilkie Collins' writing style, and I enjoy that Wilkie Collins, the author Megan refuses to do on this show. That's not a... Ref- Again, I'm not refusing anything. I haven't, I haven't read any Wilkie Collins, but if it's... If the way he writes is anything like that, it seems like it would take, like, a year to get through. Because, like, this was very short. This was a novella. We, like, you can read the whole thing online on Project Gutenberg, and it took me for fucking ever because of the writing style. So, Victorian sensation. <laughs> Maybe it's just the theming then. Maybe. But yeah, lesbians that are vampires sucking on each other, always a positive. Always a positive. Always a positive. Those were the best episodes of True Blood. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Carmela. Caramella. Good, bad, blood sucking. Go. Uh, the language issue did kind of make things difficult for me if you want just like a fun Halloween read because adjusting to the rhythm is a little difficult. And like, look, obviously, this is not the progressive lesbian love story for the ages. It was definitely unique for its time in that this was not like a penny dreadful, like, ooh, sexy, dirty little paperback. Like, this was a mainstream published story that had lesbian eroticism that was not just like subtext, but hot, hot text. But of course, it's still, you know, it's bad and evil. Hot, hot text. Yeah, hot, hot text. For the story to work with Victorian morals, you know, Carmilla is a sexual aggressor and she suffers for her actions and desires. And Laura's allowed to, to be horny, but only because it's forced upon her. She's enchanted. And, and can, so, so none of the horny lady feelings are good within the framework of the, the novella and the time that it was in. So if you're looking for a, a, a lesbian good time, go watch the web series. As a short story, it's fine. It's shorter than Dracula, we can give it that. Uh, <laughs> Dracula did have more going on in, in it, and it's also frustrating at the end that you get all of this sexy buildup and, and stuff with Carmilla and Laura. Only to have 
you know, these two men just show up the fuck out of nowhere. Like, hey, I'm the general. I'm here now. Here's my story. And hey, I'm Baron Vordenberg. I'm going to exist for two chapters. Laura, go away. We're going to kill Carmilla off screen and you're going to hear about it later. Like, that's bullshit. That's just the worst. So that bummed me out. So I'm going to say it's not good. Wow. Yeah. That's the stance I'm taking. At me. Although I guess other adaptations that seem cool that involve Carmilla couldn't exist without it. So fine, I suppose. And that'll about do it for this very spooky homosexual episode of Oh No Lit Class. No, no, no. You started this episode with the song. And then you reminded me of a song here. Oh, Carmilla is my boyfriend. <laughs> Carmilla is my girlfriend. Carmilla is my dead end. Carmilla is my imaginary friend. Carmilla is my brother. Carmilla is my great granddaughter. Carmilla is my sister. Carmilla is my favorite mistress. Carmilla is my hot, hot sex. <laughs> Carmilla is my hot, hot sex. Carmilla is where I want you to touch me. Is it me? Carmilla is my hot, hot bath. Carmilla is my hot, hot sex. Carmilla is my back rub. Carmilla is where I'd like you to touch. Yeah, Carmilla is where I'd like you to touch. What made you think of that? Because she said that line just now. I, all I said was... She's hot, hot something. Oh, the hot, hot text. Uh, Carmilla Cam- is my hot, hot text. That's a long way to go for that joke. Not really. You said hot, hot text. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, that was like eight minutes ago. So that Carmilla about... is where I like you to touch. What band is that? CSS. 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 They're they're in the old old timey iPod commercial. Yeah. Um, the shuffle. Yep. That's where you want to touch them. I right have that little button. Yep. Little note. Yep. You have a whole screen. Yep. It's like a quit. That'll about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Classes. Uh, finale of our our spooky episodes. We we hope that you enjoyed them, and if if you did, you know, let like subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell that gay vampire who keeps popping into your room at night and biting you on the, the titty while she's doing that. You'd be like, hey, touch, get, touch my hot, hot get, off, get off my titty and go listen to Ono oh Lit Class. Or CSS. Or both. You, at you, the same you, time. Yes. We, we sync up like when you listen to Dark Side of the Moon and watch The Wizard of Oz. No, The Wiz. This is a fucking train wreck. Yeah, don't watch The Wizard of Oz. Watch The Wiz. Our next episode is on November 14th. Until then, I'm Megan. That's the anchor and I'm the cock. <laughs> Happy Halloween. We love you. Bye. You know what's scarier than vampires? What is scarier than vampires? Herpes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything could happen on Halloween. RJ could actually be gay. I don't know. What rhymes with J? Gray. Bay. <laughs> Say. <laughs> I'm told people are, are born gay, so you can't suddenly become gay. Well, but I'm, anything could happen on Halloween. When did you choose to be gay? Baby, I was born this way. You could realize you were born this way. <laughs> On Halloween, Lady Gaga could be there.